Enjoy the game by Lionel Burney. Chapter 19 The Family Club. English football's reputation had been battered by hooliganism, but the spring of 1985 was the tragic nadir. Years of neglect had left Stadia crumbling and the game was in danger of becoming socially unacceptable. The Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, hated football and the trouble it caused, especially when English hooligans misbehaved abroad. In March, Chelsea fans rioted at Stamford Bridge as they lost a Milk Cup semi-final against Sunderland. But for a deflected goal, it could have been Watford there that night among the police horses and debris. The following week, Millwall's hooligans ran riot at Kenilworth Road. Watford had a lucky escape there too. If they'd beaten Luton in the FA Cup fifth round, it would have been down to them to welcome Millwall to Vicarage Road. Chelsea's answer to the problem was to install an electric fence. Luton's solution was a ban on away supporters and the introduction of an identity card system. In the space of a few days in May, football's problems took a dark, tragic turn. On May the 11th, the day Watford won 5-1 at Tottenham, there was a riot at a match between Birmingham and Leeds. A teenage boy died when a wall collapsed. There were police horses and lumps of concrete on the pitch. The same day, while not caused by crowd disorder, 56 people died in a fire at Bradford City demonstrating that some of the country's grounds were outdated, not fit for purpose, and, in the case of Valley Parade, downright lethal. Litter dropped between the seats of a wooden stand was allowed to build up over the years, and all it took was a carelessly discarded cigarette to cause a tragedy. A fortnight later, Liverpool and Juventus supporters clashed at the European Cup final, held at the decrepit Heysel Stadium in Brussels. A wall collapsed and 39 people died. Europe's footballing body, UEFA, had seen enough. English clubs were banned from European competition, which penalised all clubs and shortened the horizons for clubs like Watford. The recession, the violence at football matches and the poor facilities meant crowds had slipped to less than half the post-war peak. Football had fallen out of fashion. Television had lost interest and the Football League unable to accept the product was not as valuable as it thought, kicked the cameras out when broadcasters failed to match the asking price. For five months at the end of 1985 and the beginning of 1986, there were no live games and no highlights either and barely anyone kicked up a fuss. The game was at crisis point. One club was bucking the trend. Vicarage Road was neat and tidy a delightful contrast to some of the dark, menacing and tumble-down grounds around the country. Women and children were encouraged to attend and made to feel welcome. Supporters were not held in cages. There were no fences topped with vicious spikes blocking the view. Instead of herding fans like cattle and bracing themselves for trouble, Watford created a family atmosphere, treated home and away fans with respect and trusted them to behave. Only very rarely was that trust abused. There was no easy solution for football's ills, but draconian proposals from Ken Bates at Chelsea and Luton's chairman, David Evans, a Thatcherite MP, were not the answer. Fences and ID cards were not likely to be as effective 
as the cultural change Watford were trying to bring about. They hoped to make football a game the family could enjoy with a range of simple but effective measures that were completely lacking in cynicism. Yes, it would be good for business if more people clicked with the turnstiles, and the future would be bright if they could lure a generation of children away from Tottenham and Arsenal, but they weren't doing it because it meant more pound notes. They were doing it because it was right. Many applauded their efforts. Brian Clough said, They should move the FA headquarters out to Watford. Graham Taylor wanted his club to feel like a family. He made sure he knew his players' wives and girlfriends by name, invited them to club functions and made sure they were welcome on match days. Players were instructed to live no more than 25 miles away from Watford. This was partly practical. Taylor didn't want his players spending hours in the car every day, but he also wanted them to feel part of their community. If they were seen out and about in the area, using the local shops and restaurants, sending their children to the local schools, the supporters would see them and identify with them. The club had a sponsorship deal with Benskins, the local brewery. There was a customer reward scheme that offered Benskins club members a free pint when Watford won. The players took turns to visit the pubs to chat with the regulars. You wouldn't be able to do it now, says Taylor. I'd go with two or three of the players and we'd have a half and meet people. It worked for us because it meant the supporters connected with the players. They were people, not just faceless blokes who turned up on the pitch once a week. The supporter on the terraces, instead of having a go at John Barnes or whoever it was, would think, hey, let's encourage him. I met him the other day and he was a nice fella. Taylor told the players they were representing the club and the town and he wanted the town to be proud of them. They visited schools and hospitals and attended charity events. We wanted to get out into the community, he says. We couldn't put anything in their contracts requiring it because the PFA wouldn't let us, but the players bought into it. Coming from a big city club that could rely on good support without having to try too hard, it was all new for Pat Rice. I'd only been there a couple of weeks and all the players went up to the high street to take part in a charity egg and spoon race, he says. The whole place felt like a family. You were introduced to the groundsmen and the people who worked in the kitchens. You got to know them and everyone wanted to help you. You could go to Les Simmons, the groundsman, and he'd lend you a fork or a pair of shears and you'd give them back the next day. Every few weeks we'd do something that would be unheard of at most other clubs. One day we were asked to meet in the car park and we walked up to the old folks' home. We went in and had fish and chips for lunch with them. I was talking to this old boy who'd been in two world wars and listening to him was brilliant. He said, tell me about the Arsenal. And I said, no, tell me more about yourself. Doing things like that was superb because it reminded you that no matter how seriously you took your football, and we took it very seriously, there were more important things in life. One Christmas, Les Taylor won two dozen frozen turkeys from Bernard Matthews when he was voted player of the month. I gave them to an old people's home, and I had all the old dears kissing me, he says. Graham Taylor's primary responsibility was what happened on the pitch. No initiative to attract the supporters would be worth much if the team was dreary to watch or got thumped regularly. Taylor knew there was something that could be almost as damaging to the game's future as hooliganism, and that was boredom. He had been critical of the stifling tactics of Queen's Park Rangers and Arsenal, who relied on the offside trap and killed time by passing the ball back to the goalkeeper, who would dribble across the penalty area before picking it up. During a friendly against the Canadian team Vancouver Whitecaps in March 1981, Taylor proposed to ban 
the back pass for the night. If a player did pass the ball back, a klaxon would sound to warn the keeper not to handle it. This experiment was more than a decade ahead of its time. In 1992, FIFA banned the back pass. Watford looked to other sports and to America to see if anything could be learned. They were seeking to improve the experience and make football fun, and Taylor knew that in order to establish the club as a first division force, Watford needed to attract a new generation of supporters. Children had pester power, and if Watford were able to persuade parents that Vicarage Road was a safe place, they might turn an Arsenal family into a Watford family. One afternoon, Eddie Plumley and Taylor were strolling around the ground, discussing a few things, when they struck upon the idea of setting aside a specific area of seating in the main stand for families. The idea would be that adults would only be allowed to sit in the family enclosure if they were with a child. A couple of years later, in 1983, Taylor ran the London Marathon to raise £30,000 to create the family terrace. A yellow line was painted halfway up the terrace, and only children were allowed to stand in front of it. This meant they got an unobstructed view of the game, but their parents were only a few feet behind them. Whether it was holding open days for children or Elton handing out Easter eggs on the family terrace, Watford were continually trying to reach out and delight their fans. Caroline Gillies, the marketing manager, was always innovative, and Anne and Alan Swanson worked tirelessly to promote the family terrace. Watford's reputation as the family club, the friendly club, was born. Taylor regularly used his column in the programme to highlight the work that was being done. He tried to stamp out bad language, saying it had no place at a family club. People may think we're goody-goodies, but let's be proud of what we are, he wrote. Watford's example did not go unnoticed. They didn't have the best team and the stadium was miles behind, but when Doug Ellis, the Aston Villa chairman, invited nine other clubs for secret talks about a breakaway Super League, Watford were among them. Nothing came of those talks. By the time the top clubs broke free of the Football League to form the Premier League seven years later, Watford had slipped away. End of chapter 19. Next time, as Graham Taylor refreshes the team, not every player fits the mould.